Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Follow our socials and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. We'll see you all there. And now, here's this week's episode. Hey guys, there's a cool company called Sound Royalties that was founded about 10 years ago. They provide funding for music creatives without ever taking ownership of their copyrights. All they need to do is see that you have a royalty stream. They don't need personal guarantees, collateral, financial statements, or credit checks. They work alongside publishers and labels, distributors, and PROs. They don't replace them. Again, all they need to know is that you have a royalty stream of at least $5,000 in a year, whether it's from mechanical performance, digital streaming sync, whatever it is. If you're interested in finding out more about Sound Royalties, check out their website or DM them on Instagram or call 844-4-ALL-MUSIC. That's right. It's 844 844- for all music to get started with sound royalties. Call them today. Hey guys, I'm excited to say a few words about one of today's sponsors, Seeker Music. Seeker was founded and is run by one of my very dear friends and repeat guest on And The Writer is Evan Bogart. Evan is an advocate for songwriters. He is in charge of the songwriter wing of the Grammys, He's a trustee for the Grammys. He's just a good person. And so that kind of community and culture is what Seeker is based on. They acquire only the best catalogs and sign only the best humans. That's the kind of person Evan is in real life, and that's the kind of person that runs Seeker. So I recommend you go follow Seeker on all their social media sites, but go follow Evan too and let them know how much you appreciate Evan's work. Because of him, we have Songwriter of the Year. Because of him, we have Songwriters added to the Album of the Year for the Grammys. And now he's got his publishing company that is a wonderful sponsor for our podcast. So thank you again, Seeker. You go check him out now. BMI is the champion of the creator. Supporting songwriters and making sure you get paid for your creative work. More than that, BMI has an incredible team that helps guide and develop songwriters, shows you how to navigate the industry, plus provides invaluable opportunities on stages and at festivals. Bottom line, they help you with your career at all levels, from those just starting out to the biggest hit makers. Just like they helped me out when I was just starting out and how they still help me out today. You can learn more at BMI.com. (laughs) 
Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's producing guru is a 15 times nominated, 5 times Grammy winning, evergreen crafting, multi-genre songwriter. This jazz pianist turned beat maker turned mega producer has talent that was recognized by some of the world's greatest musicians long before we, the public, knew his name. His hustle and willingness to walk through any door has provided our generation with not just hits, but career-defining smashes from Kanye to Jay-Z to Fun to Bruno Mars his compositions are the ones new artists are still trying to emulate all the way from Los Angeles by way of the rest of the world this music legend is most importantly a good father and the writer is Jeff Basker I love that intro Ross yeah man so okay uh, usually I start conversations by uh, you know, starting from the beginning when you were born, and uh, but this is I'm going to do something kind of kind of different here, which is um, in the, in the hero's journey, there's always these Yodas, you know, like the hero's journey always like you, there are all these people who kind of like dropped seeds along the way that was like, no, you can do this, you can do this. So I'm going to go backwards because here's this moment where. Uh, you and I are 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 uh, having this conversation, but I don't know if you know we've actually met a couple times. So I'm gonna just go backwards for a second for you. Okay. I'm assuming you don't. I'm, I'm assuming you don't remember. So I'm, I'll just go with this. In 2017, I won Songwriter of the Year for BMI. The year before that, you won Song of the Year for Uptown Funk, and I remember being like. Fuck yeah, that's Jeff Basker. Like I, you know, I, that guy's awesome. And we had met once before that, and I, I didn't go up to you to say congrats. But right now, I'm saying congrats on that. <laughs> but part of part of the reason why I should have gone up to you is that before that, in maybe 2013 or 14, we were at a writing camp together that Benny Blanco and and Stargate were. Hosting with Nate Roos and whatnot, and you uh-huh. and Nate and Emil, you and Nate and Emil Haney were in one room, and I was in a room with Stargate and Benny and Charlie XCX, and like a few people came through. See, uh, Mickey Echo, Amar Malik was there. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. You know, a bunch, a bunch of like I, I recall the crew this. Were there. I recall me bringing a smoke machine and lasers for our room. Yes, totally. <laughs> and here, here, <laughs> here's our room, which is like pretty like clean and like mathy and yeah. your room is like three days of running pro tools and and probably tape machines i mean i don't know what the fuck you guys are doing um sorry to swear so much but you guys had like lasers and smoke literal smoke and you couldn't even see into the <laughs> booth i don't know how you guys are breathing what you guys were doing but in there looked like music, and in our room looked like songs. And I remember being like, "Oh, this is really interesting. There's like, this is kind of inspiring." But even before that, the reason why that was cool for me was six years before that. Well, first of all, so we wrote at that camp. I think we wrote "Same Old Love," which was one of the songs that I got that Amazing. I got an uh-huh, award for okay. the year after. But six years before that. I get sent a track from our mutual friend Dave Hoffman. Uh huh. <laughs> and Dave Hoffman goes like, "Hey, you should write your tracks." I was in a band, so I wasn't really doing 
top 40 anything. I wasn't even aiming for it. I didn't even know what pop was. I was one of those guys that was like, oh, pop music is like what those guys do. So um, anyway, I got sent a track and it was from you. And I wrote this song that was awful. It was, it was, it was right when so we, Sean we, Kingston was We've all was written real, many of those. Well, it was, it was from when Sean Kingston was really big. And uh-huh. I wrote a song called Come, Come On Shawty. And I spelled it like that. S-H-A-W-T-Y. Very correct and you spelling. Responded to Dave, you responded to Dave with this. You said, that might be the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. Maybe it's his voice. There is something, though, to the Miami bass approach. White guys aren't allowed to say shorty, though. And and when you said that, like it was this moment of like, oh, maybe this isn't going to be as easy as I thought it would be. And also, I probably shouldn't appropriate and should probably like write my own song in this world. <laughs> so you may not have any recollection of any of that journey, but you... I know I went backwards, but those like little moments are things where you're like, "Oh, I want to do it the way that guy's doing it." So mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna start this by saying thank you. <laughs> oh my god! Wow, what a uh, what a difference five years makes. Well, I'm glad you took something positive out of that. I mean, I think that's that's the goal, and it reminds me of kind of like an an older kind of more. I think like when I was kind of a little more in Kanye's world, we had a, a culture of Look, no bitch assness. Like, just say what you mean and understand that it's not to be offensive. Just take something constructive out of it. N- now I've kind of learned, hopefully, to like that my le- my words fall a little soft, more softly. You know, I think also like like Mark Ronson's a great example of that. Like, you don't have to kind of be abrasive or maybe too curt. Um, to get your point across necessarily, but I'm glad you did take something positive out of, out of that, and and definitely in this like age of like overly politically correctness, like go ahead and say shoddy. I mean, at least say shoddy. Don't say shorty. You know, like just say shoddy. <laughs> you spelled it right. It's pronounce it right. You know, and you're you're writing for like a a, a black guy, so he's, he can say shoddy, right? You're writing for him. I mean, white. It's Quentin Tarantino, right? So, um, <clears throat> I don't know what uh. You know, like, um, I think now I would just say, I wouldn't have to say that's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. But I, I do think there's there's something to... But it wasn't good. I, I'm not offended by right, that kind right. of comment. And I think there's like, there's... I feel like maybe I've know, gotten it, soft in my old age now. Yeah, maybe there's, a, there's like a line. Because at some point, it, it wasn't like you said, that guy should quit. And I'm glad that, you know, it was... Right. And you didn't know who I you didn't know who I was or anything and t- there's no way you would. And at the time, I don't even know if this is like January of 2008. I just looked at the email cuz I was like I have to I have to mention this. That's and I so don't mean funny. to start your interview with it, but I have to had to look it up. And that's even before I think 808 and Heartbreaks came out. Mm. You know what I mean? So at the time, I think that was like the year it came out. And I think that's like, um, and I remember. I, I think Dave it would have been. I, I think it would have been. Oh, oh, I see. When you got the Dave Hoffman, uh, right? Sorry, not to interrupt you. What, what were you saying? No, I'm. I, I was just gonna say, like at the time, I was like, hey, this guy plays piano for keyboards for, um, uh, for for Kanye, and 
You say you pronounce it Kanye. Is that that's correct? Correct. I, I, I don't think there's a the wrong way to, to say it, but definitely people in his circle would say Kanye. When I hear that you were doing keyboards for Kanye, it's like, it's like, man, this like how cool is that? I mean, I'm I'm playing in right. the Viper Room with a with a band that is is dying. <laughs> you know, it's like, like that was so rad to just even. I mean, play it was definitely super point. cool. Definitely like one of the great highlights of my life. Um, but I don't think it was, you know, I mean, everything has its like place in the timeline of each of our evolution, right? And I, I definitely played m- many a a uh, shitty gig for, for, for people in my lifetime. And I don't know, just like reading a little b- about you and like doing your one-man show and doing everything. Like, I also think it's it's awesome to... This conversation reminds me of the kind of a thought I had about how something I'm trying to cultivate now is like doing your own thing. Sometimes like when you work with these these giants, like you're kind of in their shadow to some extent, you know? So it's a nice shadow to be in and I, I definitely like soaked up. It's not just a shadow, it's like a it's more like a solar system, right? And there's one sun in that solar system. But to become your own sun and make your own solar system that that can't happen you can't be your you can't be there's only one sun in the in Kanye's universe right or any great I mean mega artist like we're in service to them and we're there to kind of help cultivate their vision add to it some something our our gravitational force has an effect it's all a balance right but um just made me think about that that while I, I, I see your point in that moment, right? But maybe for like people listening out there to realize like every part of the journey is really important and wherever you're at, whether you're in uh, the room with Kanye or um, winning BMI Songwriter of the Year Awards or you're playing at your gig for seven people, those are all moments that are important. And not in some ways, the struggle part is the more important that you'll look back on and say, "Damn, like that was the that was the shit. That was the exciting part." You know, I think it's like I, sometimes I equate it to like I love watching these like mountaineering movies, you know, and like like mountain climbing and uh, alpine, like the alpinist, and, uh, and watching people climb Mount Everest and. I think it was uh, Touching the Void where he mentions that once you get to the top of the mountain, you feel like there's going to be this, oh my God, like this elated feeling like that you're overwhelmed with by having achieved your goal, standing at the top of this vista. And at least to his point of view, he was saying it, it's, it's really not like that. You're just kind of like... Yeah, I'm stand. I'm still. I'm just standing here on on something. It's not this. It's it's none of that. And the actual part. It's that cliche that it's the journey, not the destination. You know, like that. It's the struggle and the climb that is the exciting part. So that's just kind of one thought, kind of to that scenario. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about your struggle to getting to the top because you you get to the top a few times and you've done a couple interviews recently that go through a lot of your past so I don't want to necessarily rehash that you had a great interview with Bob Lefsetz there's there's some right. where you go through through a lot of your journey but 
you know, you come from parents that are not musicians, or I guess they weren't professionally musicians. Were were your parents musicians? No, no. And but but my mom has a, my mom's dad was kind of a an amateur musician who learned like by ear and 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 had a thing, you know. And like my mom's brother, like my uncle, like he's still like into music and. There's a musical talent there that's, you know, by no means any, any, nothing ever went professional or, but there's like a, an ear for music there. So more than, more so than my dad, my dad's side or something like the musical side definitely comes from my mom's side. As a pianist, that's, the piano is not an easy instrument. To me, I think guitar is so much easier. You know, the shape of a major chord is the same all the way up and down the neck. It's a it's a lot more intuitive to me than piano, which I've played for years but never had your skill set. Somebody is teaching who who teaches you piano and who convinces you that that practicing is worth your time. Yeah, I mean that I mean it's funny that having that perception, um, but my first experiences on the piano were, you know, when my parents got divorced, uh, I think from one of my birthdays, my dad rented me a piano when I lived with my mom. So there was this piano in the house, maybe I'm like five years old or something. And I would just pluck on it and do... Uh, just my own compositions. I, I would kind of like express myself, but it was nothing like no one would ever look at that and be like, wow, this kid is like a prodigy or I got talent or he's going to be something. And I, and I took piano lessons and I think I would, it's funny you bring up the practicing because I wouldn't practice. I was much more interested in exploring than practicing, you know, um, and it's only now, like in my later years. And I guess when I went to, Berkeley also that I started practicing, but everything was like um, uh, technically very backwards with what I was doing on the piano. And I, I was in jazz band in high school. That's when I, you know, my mom played a little bit of like kind of little jazz arrangement of, um, of um, tenderly and hearing those harmonies kind of were always in the back of my head. And then, I would take piano lessons later when I moved with my dad in New Mexico from like, you know, local, it's like nothing like, not, not like a, a Nadia Boulanger uh, composition class. It's just the piano class that, and a great teacher too, not to, not to say anything bad about her, but I'm just saying it's just a normal piano teacher. But she, um, Mrs. Schuster, because um, I would never practice that much because I was always interested in just messing around. I spent a lot of time at the piano, but not practicing my piece that I was supposed to be practicing. And I would always be messing around because her piano sounded good to me. I would like be messing around before the lesson and, and uh, then we'd get into the lesson. And one day she gave me a cassette tape and she said, here, I think you'll like this. And one side was Oscar Peterson, Night Train. And the other side was Chick Corea, Hymn to the Seventh Galaxy. And I put it on and I was like, oh, hell yes. This is what I've been searching for. And it kind of just got me in. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The jazz. So I kind of pursued jazz and then just skipped to like going to Berkeley. That's when it was like, oh yeah, your technique is all jacked up. So then I was like, okay, I got to practice. So I was practicing a lot, but even then I had to learn how to practice, right? So it's been quite a long journey for me that's still continuing. I mean, I'm still like in over COVID was another opportunity to kind of get a, a really great piano teacher to kind of really then start even doing more with my technique and practicing. So it's a lifelong thing I'm pursuing, but I guess maybe one thing I did practice was just being at the piano and expressing myself through the piano. I think ironically, perhaps it's the not practicing and pursuing what I definitely was on this journey to like become Oscar Peterson and then kind of was like, shit, I don't think that is going to happen right now. And I've kind of chosen this path in my career. I need to figure out some, I, I need to just start expressing myself. Like that's something like they don't teach you at Berkeley, right? Or, or maybe at a conservatory to, uh, either, uh, how to be an artist, you know? And it was, I even had, a, and then I, I lived in Germany one year, my senior year of high school, I was an exchange student in Germany and I did find an amazing piano. I had this amazing host family that helped, knew I was into jazz and music and that was my opportunity to go seek out jazz. Um, and they found this amazing piano teacher for me, this guy, Bernd Freidank, who started playing piano when he was 18, kind of late in life, but he had rafts of Oscar Peterson and Bill Evans transcriptions that he could play. He had an Oscar Peterson cover band. And, <laughs> um, you know, I, he was a big influence on me and so such a great teacher for me at that time. But he did say one thing that I ended up kind of contradicting was he was like, you know, when you, once you go through all the piano music of classical Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, Rahmaninoff, Brahms, Schubert, Schumann, all this stuff, and then you go through transcribing all these great jazz pianists, then you will have your own style. So it was kind of in my head that I, I have to do all that before I create a before I have a style, and I in the end I think that was wrong. You know, like um, I think yeah. There's a little bit of that. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, what were you gonna say? Well, I mean, there's. I remember hearing a, a an anecdote about John Lennon saying, you know, what kind of music? If somebody asking him what kind of music does he listen to, and he said, "Do you think?" Picasso is going to museums looking at other artists. He goes, I don't need to listen to that. Then I lose my my artistry in it. I don't know if that's true either. I think that there's probably somewhere in the middle there, but right. there is no, something maybe to later, say. Maybe like, like later when you're like, once you've kind of, I did some, right? I tried. But if you're going to spend all your energy trying to be someone else, 
you, you know, I visited Berndt Freidank later in life and he was trying to learn how to do the, or he was playing organ and learning foot paddles and everything. And he was playing me some of his music and I was realizing, oh wow, he didn't creatively evolve. You're not, and now, now like he's much older. Like, when are you gonna get through all this music? Guess what? It's infinite. You're not gonna get through all of it. Like, you have to also cultivate this idea of like, What's my point of view? And also I think furthermore, one thing I, I kind of in my production style and I think, you know, as a writer, like since like the focus of this is, is, is in the writing, I think a lot of times like creativity can be based on like accidents, right? It's, and that's kind of what poetry is. It's kind of like what doesn't make sense, like the making sense of it or doing things correctly is not the interesting part. Like that's what to, what a joke is, right? The joke is not the punchline is not what logically and, and is supposed to happen. It's something that you could never imagine happened. It's the different thing, and that's what a good engine for that is just doing shit wrong. You know, so doing shit wrong is vastly underrated, and it's you know it's another cliche that's like you learn by making mistakes, you know, and that, but that's really true. And like making those mistakes and examining those mistakes and making sure you don't discard some of the amazing mistakes, right? Because they're all really, mistake is just a concept. Really, it's just another option. And what makes it a mistake is what society or a culture or a, a, a uh, establishment like defines as a mistake. But being an artist is all about, yeah, would you look at a, a, a later Picasso and say, that's good painting. Like, it, like to an older painter, they, they, they were like trying to do realism, right? And then the camera was invented and they were like, well, the camera can just do this infinitely better than you're going to. So what's the next level of painting? And there are just so many dimensions and and uh, I mean, dimension is just the best word to use because there's so many perspectives to look at something. And I think that's definitely something I've tried to cultivate in my life is how do I do this more artistically? How do I do things more outside the box and not what someone is going to accept, which Sometimes it's a harder road to travel because a lot of times I'll kind of get like a scratch head look like that's the that's your idea like people don't get it often but I think you have to kind of I I try to stay I'm I'm learned more and more especially after you have some success to trust that part but even now sometimes you have to be like damn yeah I'm going to stick to this and that's my point of view. Yeah, I think having this is where collaboration is exciting more so than writing by yourself is that when you make a mistake you're surrounded by people who say no 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 keep that absolutely you know versus if you're alone and you know you need perspective and the only way you get that alone is time and if you have any sort of sense of urgency or ADD, you need to be in a room full of other people who might be able to point out that mistake is not a mistake. That mistake is our new hook. Totally agree. <laughs> right. No, you're so right about that. And that, that is a beautiful thing about collaborating. You're right. 
Hey guys, there's a cool company called Sound Royalties that was founded about 10 years ago. They provide funding for music creatives without ever taking ownership of their copyrights. All they need to do is see that you have a royalty stream. They don't need personal guarantees, collateral, financial statements, or credit checks. They work alongside publishers and labels, distributors, and PROs. They don't replace them. Again, all they need to know is that you have a royalty stream of at least $5,000 in a year, whether it's from mechanical performance, digital streaming, sync, whatever it is. If you're interested in finding out more about Sound Royalties, check out their website or DM them on Instagram or call 844-4-ALL-MUSIC. That's right. It's 844 844- for all music to get started with sound royalties. Call them today. Hey guys, I'm excited to say a few words about one of today's sponsors, Seeker Music. Seeker was founded and is run by one of my very dear friends and repeat guest on And The Writer is Evan Bogart. Evan is an advocate for songwriters. He is in charge of the songwriter wing of the Grammys He's a trustee for the Grammys. He's just a good person. And so that kind of community and culture is what Seeker is based on. They acquire only the best catalogs and sign only the best humans. That's the kind of person Evan is in real life, and that's the kind of person that runs Seeker. So I recommend you go follow Seeker on all their social media sites, but go follow Evan too and let them know how much you appreciate Evan's work because of him. We have Songwriter of the Year. Because of him, we have songwriters added to the album of the year for the Grammys. And now he's got his publishing company that is a wonderful sponsor for our podcast. So thank you again, Seeker, and go check them out now. BMI is the champion of the creator, supporting songwriters and making sure you get paid for your creative work. More than that, BMI has an incredible team that helps guide and develop songwriters, shows you how to navigate the industry, plus provides invaluable opportunities on stages and at festivals. Bottom line, they help you with your career at all levels, from those just starting out to the biggest hit makers, just like they helped me out when I was just starting out and how they still help me out today. You can learn more at BMI.com. When you you came up, um, before we get to, you know, the commercial stuff, you know, when you went to Berkeley as a jazz pianist, the collaboration in the jazz community is, is often similar to what you're talking about, about the solar system. Like when you think of Oscar Peterson, you think of Chick Career, any of these guys, they all have these ensembles. And in that ensemble, sometimes you'd end up with um, a young Coltrane or a young uh-huh. Miles Davis. But, you know, those people also had to go out. But it's really interesting to start. It's not like classical music has that same uh, history where... You you've got an ensemble that supports the sun, you know that like you were talking about the solar system, and it's like you came right. up in in a in a world that jazz world is that when when did you first start actually playing in ensembles versus playing alone at you know at home right. with piano? Well, for sure in my like high school jazz band and also yeah, yeah. concert band, right? That was like in and and especially like in my little town. You know what happened? The story was kind of like. 
um, uh, there was like an eighth grade talent show. And I was a little more into like, um, like speech competitions and like we had this thing called the declamation contest that I would kind of crush every year because I had this book called uh, Revolting Rhymes by Roald Dahl that had these really <laughs> nice. witty, uh, twisted versions of fairy tales that always slayed. You could always be, you could either be in serious or humorous category. And I would, I would just use one of those every year. And actually my, I had this great teacher uh, when I moved to New Mexico uh, in third grade that helped me do my first one was Casey at the Bat. And I got second place with Casey at the Bat. But anyway, I would do these kind of speech things, but I would just play piano for myself. And then I like played clarinet and like the, the like concert band thing. And, but I saw this kid playing like a keyboard. No, he played piano, he played a keyboard or something. And, and everyone was clapping and I was kind of looking at him going, no, 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 man, that, that's my thing. Like that's my thing. And <clears throat> another friend of my dad's son bought a synthesizer and that's just that word synthesizer was like, I want a synthesizer, you know? And then I found out that in the jazz band, there was a jazz band in the high school. And I was like, oh, I, I want to do that. I want to be in the jazz band. And they had like an ESQ1, like an Insonic ESQ1 keyboard. And I thought that was like the coolest thing in the fucking world. Um, but then that was like, you know, four years of, of high school jazz band and concert band, and even one year we had like a theory class. We got this new teacher who was like actually a pretty smoking dr uh, like jazz drummer, and went to like FIT was it no not FIT like these drum institute guitar institute here in LA, and would go check out Vinnie Caluda and and was really into Frank Zappa and stuff, and and was like him kind of arriving in my high school. I think it was maybe my sophomore or junior year, really like stimulated like he was kind of like oh this kid's into like jazz and I show him Dave Weckl and he was like oh and like we'd kind of like you know like there was still kind of a teacher student boundary there and I think he was kind of but at least you know there was a resource there for me to uh to be around and there was even also like uh, there's a university in my town where they had a little jazz lab and the the teacher there um kind of embraced me Mike Iaturo uh, R.I.P. and um, uh, I would kind of play in that ensemble also, which which my teacher played the drums in. So it was kind of a killing band because he'd kick this, and a lot of it was like revolved around like big band, you know. So, <clears throat> kind of to your point about these movements and the kind of the crossover between um, classical and jazz music. I think uh, when I went to Berkeley, it was also revolved around me. I mean, wanting to be a composer, you know, I wanted to compose and part of my kind of interest was in modern Compo classical compose music also. Compose what? Like compose? Compose like serious uh, classical and, and jazz music like Stravinsky and Gil Evans yeah. and... Um, and also like, you know, like the bebop movement, like that was a movement of a, where they kind of invented a new language, you know? Like I love how Igor Stravinsky, there's a story about him like crossing the border and on his passport it says, 
music inventor, inventor of music. Yeah. And they're like, what does that mean? And they're like, I'm an inventor of music. And they're like, you mean like you're a composer? And he's like, no, I'm an inventor of music. And they're like, you mean you, you're a composer? And then they're like, no, I'm an inventor of music. And they're like, just fucking say you're an in- a composer. And he's like, no, I'm a fucking inventor of music. Yeah. You know, like yeah. he would not, and I, I love that it was that clear in his mind that he was inventing new language, a new vernacular. He was inventing his own style of, and it really sounds like that. It's like, but, um, and I think there may be more crossover between jazz and classical kind of traditions of music than we think. I think we think of it like that because of, and I'm not sure, I'm not a musicologist or a music historian, but uh, I feel like there are enough kind of anecdotal things I've read where, you know, we think of classical music as this thing, we go to a hall, they, they rehearse, they, we know it's, it's so codified now, the process of it. But I suspect that back then it was much more improvisational and casual than we perceive it, you know, in retrospect, because it was just like a thing people did. I, I guess it was in courts of like uh, royalty and also in church and stuff. But, you know, everyone, I mean, a piano was like an Xbox or a television back then, right? It was basically what you had, even up until the 40s and 50s, it was the thing you had. That's why in every home there was a piano because that was the thing you had that you could kind of entertain yourself. Everyone, not everyone, but most people could play. Most people could read music, you know, because that's was one of the few kind of extra kind of things, like entertaining and satisfying things you could do, right? So in music history, I remember there was this anecdote in one of our books where it, it described this person's, who was standing outside of a house listening to somebody play piano for hours. And in our world now, we're so used to recorded music being part of everything. You go into a grocery store, you go into an elevator, you go into a car. There's, you just open up your window, somebody driving by is playing recorded music. Right. But the idea that before recording of a music, you either you played or you heard somebody play or it was silent. It right, is it. and a- you know what that makes me think of? It's like in our world now, like publishing. I was trying to explain publishing to someone the other day, and it was like, like publishing. But back then, that was like publishing the sheet music was like making a record almost because you're like disseminating this music somehow. Um, and now it just seemed we kind of take it for granted because that part of it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't matter as much because it's recorded, but. Back then, publishing was the way that you shared the music because people would get it and they would play it or they could send it or they could have it in their wagon that they were going to Oregon or wherever they're fucking blazing a trail to and that was their, and there was hit songs, right? Like, how do you play it? And there you go and you can play it, I I guess. I mean, it's a fascinating subject, right? And it was on paper and it was in a book. It make pub- the word publishing makes a whole lot more sense when it's on paper and in a book versus right. when it's you know recorded audio. You know, I've been watching this documentary that I was telling you about, and one of the weird things about music history is like radio. You people would play live jazz, 
country, they would play live on radio. They never thought to play a re- record. Even when records existed, right. they listened to records at home. But when you listen to the radio, each radio station would have their house band. They would have their house jazz. Uh-huh. They would have uh-huh. their house classical, their house country. It wasn't until really World War II that because people were abroad, that's when they started playing records on the air. And that's when, like, you know, that then it gets into a bunch of race reasons why some people join BMI versus ASCAP and all this other stuff. But it's pretty fascinating that when you think of what we do for a living now and creating a record, and that's what people hear, man, we're not even, we're at 80 years. It's a baby industry. Yeah. Well, and it's gone through, and now with streaming and you're making this podcast, like it's kind of like exploded to another level where, I mean, think about like, I don't know how old you are, but um, I'm 48 today, actually. Today's my birthday. Oh Um, my God. Happy birthday. Hey, thanks. You know, but like I was talking to someone the other day about like, what's the first CD you bought? And you know, remember like when CDs came out, we're still like, kind of in this realm of like having to go buy the physical recording versus now. What was it? What's that? What was what was your first CD? My first CD it was a, it was a, it was a Jack DeJunet Parallel Realities. It was Jack DeJunet, Herbie Hancock, Pat Metheny Trio, which was fire and they just overdubbed yeah. the bass synth bass. It was so it was so great. Um great album. Um but now you just have kind of access to not just the entire like history of recorded music, YouTube and SoundCloud and the music that people are just creating every day. It's just like on, on overload, like the amount of recorded content period, like not just music, like that you can access, um, you know, for better and for worse. I think there's definitely a really positive, I mean, uh, aspect of that, but and maybe it's a little fuddy-duddy. But I, I think people, especially younger people, should contemplate that what it, what the value would be of contemplating one thought deeply for a long time before your mind got distracted, you know, and Ex- dig explain deeper. Explain that because yeah, your records all sound like they took time. That's one of the, like there's so much detail, there's focus, the sound design, the sound quality, the performances. Hmm. I'm sure some of the performances were off the cuff because but that would be a choice. You your records in particular sound like focus. That's funny. It's I appreciate you saying that. I I sometimes I feel like they're the opposite like, you know, like try sleeping with a broken heart for example. The way that came together was like, you know, I was working with Kanye. We would get in the studio daily and come up with ideas. So I'd kind of, maybe I'd have a couple ideas in my back pocket so that I wouldn't just feel just so put on the spot. I'd have like a few themes or kind of musical things going. And and one of them was that kind of uh, the music to try slip one of the broken heart, which he was kind of like, mm. Cool, but it didn't really resonate with him in the moment. And once like the session was kind of over, I would try to do my best Kanye impression and utilize the studio mm-hmm. and get something done. And that one was really resonating with me. 
And I made Try Sleep With a Broken Heart out of it. But, you know, even like the pass of the keyboards, like the second verse, the, the synth goes off and does this like crazy shit. Because it was all just one take of me just playing the Moog and the Juno at the same time. And I just left it. And I, I do actually try to leave a lot of the quote unquote mistakes or um, I, I don't always try to uh, meticulously clean it up. But maybe it's like more like a... A painting or a collage to the to the point we were just talking about, where I do like to live with the recording for a while and feel it and uh, feel what resonates with me in different ways, you know, or in a good way or a bad way, or like little by little, kind of take away the things that maybe aren't mistakes but distractions from what I feel like the heart and soul of the record or the song is. You know, maybe that's kind of what I'm, that hopefully what I'm trying to do when I, not hopefully what I'm trying to do, but what I'm trying to do is hopefully make a point, you know? And I guess what I, the point I was making with that last comment was, like you mentioned like ADD, you know, it's like, I think when you can move on and move on or, or there's also just, an avalanche of content that's coming your way that it's a certain way, like trap hi-hats. Like now it's like, okay, your, your song, your record better be relevant in this way because there's this avalanche of music and especially like an A&R or a label, it's just like, well, if it doesn't sound like this, we can't use it, you know, or literally like they're just looking at the likes of, 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 of everything, but rather like contemplate deeply for a long time, maybe in kind of a Zen or meditative way, what your point is beyond just throwing a trap hi-hat on your, on your beat, you know, like because you have to out of fear of it not being relevant or whatever. That, and that's kind of my own like, uh, projection because like for a while I, I kind of felt like that. I was like, once we move, kind of moved on from the 808s, dark fantasy, Kanye era where our influence kind of like influenced a big uh, era of music, but then it went into the Fruity Loops and the laptop and the and that system. It it kind of took on its own different character, and you know we're banging out on MPCs and dusty samples, and it still had a kind of a foot in this like '90s hip hop aesthetic that didn't always resonate. I think it's kind of coming back a bit now. But for a while, if it didn't sound like a very kind of rigid that 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 and that really fat digital Fruity Loops sound, which I think is awesome, and I, I I'm so um, I really love a lot of that music, but it wasn't my it wasn't like my kung fu, you know, and um, but your kung fu's a, a little bit. Uh, you know, it's all over the place because what you can do in a room with a Kanye, which is, you know, I feel like the two of you together on the records must have been running around a room playing different parts and everyone doing a little bit of everything. Am I right? Or is that... Well, to, to, some, so, to, to my, some extent, but you know what? It's funny as, the, as another kind of bring it back to the songwriting focus, it really started with a piano and him singing a melody. And we very, very intentionally, he very intentionally imposed those constraints on us, on our, on our practice, especially in the 808s, like 
aesthetic that it was, I think that that's kind of partly why he used me was because he saw I was really interested in songwriting and he was kind of, <clears throat> um, that's a part that maybe kind of got a little overlooked in the documentary, which is fantastic, I think, about him um, on Netflix, was is his kind of like love of melody. Um, but it makes a lot of sense because, you know, melody is ultimately, at least this is kind of my theory about it, you know, when I kind of like my grandfather, who was a psychiatrist, um, one time I kind of would share like some of my songs I was working on and, and he's this old Indian guy who's like in his 90s and uh, maybe a little baffled by what I do. And I, and I uh, performed this uh, piece that I had that actually was one of the favorites of Kanye and would make me rap it for Jay-Z and Beyonce when they'd be in the room. He'd say, Jeff, do that, do that, uh, do that joint. And I'd be like, Gulp. like, okay, I'm going to rap for Jay-Z right now. Okay. But it was like this thing said, you are a Christian. I am a Muslim. You live with Christians. I live in the slums. I am a Hindu. You are Jewish. I have the weapons hidden in the Buick, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I did perform that for my, my, Indian grandfather who was a Hindu and had to flee Lahore where we were from because of the partition and the Muslims and the conflict between religious uh, segregation. And it really resonated with him. And he said, wow, you're not just a cigarette smoking musician, you're a poet. And he pointed out how rhyming is a device that helps you remember. And it also made me kind of contemplate, well, melody is also that device that helps you remember. And then it made me think of like how these epic poems like the Odyssey or these kind of like what they call epic poems, sometimes we call the song of Homer or the song of this. And it made me think, and again, I'm not an academic, but made me think that they probably had melody to it too in order because it was an oral tradition in order to remember these hundreds of lines of poetry because it wasn't written down. It was an oral tradition. And that's what we do as songwriters. We create lines of poetry set to melody that stick in people's head. And these are the devices that make them stick in their head. It, it, it's, it's quite a human kind of, uh, it's like this, it's just this capacity we have. Um, so I got a little off track, but it was kind of the focus on that. I think that maybe Kanye kind of realized the melodic part because he's such a messenger, right? He is a guy who contemplates deeply and then wants to transmit his message. And you know, perhaps he realized just knowing him and kind of the multifaceted, true, truly genius he possesses is that that melody is an enhancement to the, the uh, message. Yeah. And he even relayed once, you know, he, that, that uh, when he, op he like did this stint, I think, when like late registration where he opened for the Stones and, and maybe for you too. And he noticed that all their songs, like everyone's like singing along with them. And then he'd get up there and be rapping like rafts of words and people were just like staring at him. He, he couldn't connect. So 
you really notice it in a soccer stadium, right? Or at a big rock concert where you need that melody to unite everyone. Um, and that was a kind of, I think he did that a lot on graduation. And then Ada Waits was this kind of like really stepping into it. And, and now look at all rap. Most, most rap has some kind of melodic component, but it's not just this kind of like random thing or people who were confounded by like, why are people using autotune? It's like, well, it's not about it being cheating or this or that. It's now you're creating a melody that is going to actually enhance the stickiness of that message in a human's brain. So there's a whole shtick on that. The, the, um, the melodies that come out of fun, specifically We Are Young, that is, the, that is such an exceptionally long chorus melody, and then you repeat it because if you just give the listener a chance to listen to it twice, they'll never get it out of their head. But that is not, you know, that is not bubblegum pop. That is a sophisticated melody. Well, there's the genius of Nate Roos, right? You know, I mean, he is just like all those melodies, you know, every melody on that album came from his brain and that's he writes he has just such an incredible writing style where he he doesn't really play an instrument or need an instrument to accompany him he writes the whole melody and the lyrics in his head and maps it all out and then he's like okay here's the song and then you kind of fashion something around it but the defining core guiding backbone of that song he has constructed meticulously and i just think he is just such a genius of songwriting and like you like you say it's not i don't think bubblegum's necessarily a bad word either i think there's like catchy things and devices but it's definitely a, a bit more baroque and kind of intricate and 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 so beautiful and moving and full of emotion and peaks fire when we get brighter then the sun is like so cathartic and uh, and every detail is important and yeah. not a throwaway thing. Um, that's an awesome example, you know. But that that's when yeah. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, obviously, it's like your discography is long enough that we could do this for forever because I feel like there's so there's so many um there's so many twists and turns do you ever worry that the well is run dry oh man every, every time I wake up no I'm just kidding uh <laughs> no do are you are you hard on yourself I mean between Kanye and fun is like a, not a you know there's there in between that you still have songs with Beyonce, you still have songs with like huge huge artists. So it's not like even if they weren't necessarily as big as some others, I you know it's I just wonder what happens in between for you. How do you deal with the ups and downs of the you know music industry? Right. Well, and and just being creative, right? I, I I'm sure that's something that every creative person struggles with, no matter who they are. To uh, Feel like yeah, the well's dry, or how am I going to get up for this? But I also like I I I I don't struggle with that maybe as much as I used to, and at kind of back to this idea of like cultivating and developing your artistic practice, or if you're thinking of yourself as an artist and thinking of it as a practice, and kind of going in and making the donuts, you know. Like I think I love this quote. I I think it's. Um, Chuck Close, who's the the uh, is it Chuck Jones or Chuck Close who who said inspiration is for amateurs, you know. People, yeah. A lot of people want to be inspired, you know, as a professional songwriter. And most of these people, like in our town here in L.A., where we're like going in these rooms and doing this thing, we go in and make the donuts. Like you go in and you know you might write a hundred bad songs, but you go in there and you. You write that song and you, you, you do your practice and you become, I think you become creatively stronger by willing to be willing, being willing to put yourself out there, create, and going back to like your example of the song that you sent me, uh, <laughs> that's all part of the practice and that's why my criticism, it wasn't a condemnation and you understood that. It was a critique and, and is part of making the donuts, like, yeah, this donut is is like the hole's too small or too big, you know, like right. but we're in there making it and you don't become a great creator by sitting around waiting for a great idea to hit you. You become a great I- creator by making a thousand shitty ideas and one fucking life-changing amazing one that rips people's soul out of their body. Yeah, but you're, you know, some of your years where you end up with the uh... You know, obviously, when you work with one artist, you're part of the whole album cycle, all kinds of things. And album cycles now are all messed up, so who knows what that is? But in you know, there are these years where you'd have when you same year that you had "We Are Young" and "Some Nights," you also had "Girl on Fire" and "Just Give Me a Reason" for Pink, and you know, "Locked Out of Heaven" for Bruno. That's all the same year, you know. <laughs> Right. Well, you hit, you catch you catch a you catch a groove and everything. I think the thing is like when you look back on something, you can say, "Oh, there was like all this good stuff. There was a bunch of shitty stuff too that didn't get released and didn't come out and like maybe that I think at that time I was probably just like 
working a lot more. I didn't have as much going on in my life other than doing that. And and I was making hay, right? You make hay when the sun is shining and you're you're also, I think it's a momentum thing. Like once you get one, then everyone is a lot yeah. more open to being like, oh, maybe that is a good idea. Maybe Maybe his ideas are good, right? And if you start to cool off a little, then you come back and people are like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. But when you're on fire, this writer's on fire. You know, they'll say, well, whatever, <laughs> yeah, just yeah. open your fucking mouth. I will record it. You know, like, and, and there, that it's whole funny. That's positive. That's when they ask you to add. Huh? That's when they ask you to add, that's when they ask you to add the hi-hats is when you come back and, and it's like, they're like, well, maybe if you added that, that would be exactly, fresh. Exactly. Like, exactly. <laughs> Instead of being but, like, but give it to like, me. Your song's like Uptown Funk. You know, that's a song where it doesn't, it's not trying to be now at all. Right, like it's just right. trying to be, it's it's a bunch of guys who have the skill set to write a classic record and then you just record it with with equipment and mixed in, in the way people listen to music now. But I don't listen to that record and feel like it's not the most relevant song of well, totally. that year. Totally. I mean, the, the word funk and the idea of doing like a funk song was definitely like out of left field, like very surprising that, they, you know, it was almost kind of like a like kiss of death. If you'd like put funk or something in there, it was like not like a not like an appealing thing. But that kind of goes back to like also like the, the mistakes or the rough edges of what's the personality is like when you said, yeah, I think you're nailing it when you say like three guys in a room, you know, that... uh also that are they're having fun vibing off of each other and that that comes across on the record right that comes across on not not just that record but you know for me as a producer you always want to catch that lightning in a bottle that's why you're like you have your engineer like always being ready to record make sure that mic is just ready like make sure everything is ready because when that lightning hits when that moment hits you got to catch it and you can overwork something, right? And that was the challenge with that record is we had an amazing first like 45 seconds. This shit, that ice cold, Michelle Pfeiffer, that black gold. This one for them good girls, them hood girls, straight gangster bitches. Shining, running, living it up in the city. I got Chuck's song with St. Laurent. I got to kiss myself, so pretty. And I was like, okay, and then maybe we came up with the too hot thing. And then it was like, then we got to the, okay, we're going to do this. And then we got up to like, okay, what's the chorus going to be? And then we worked on that song for like nine months because we were like, how are we going to make this song deliver? It's got to keep delivering. It can't just peak in the first 45 seconds. That's the, the excitement in the room and the, the energy of it is carrying it. Now, how do we put everything in balance and keep going and it's funny what ended up happening was it doesn't have a chorus it has a dance and it was like a kind of but a who very- decided that in the group like you've got a super crew of songwriters who's the one who's saying no that's not a chorus no that's not a chorus like are all of you in on the same page or, or I, I, was it you or Mark or was it was it Bruno who or Phil who's well, the you one know, who's but, doing what? Bruno and I go way back to when he first moved to L.A. and we kind of learned how to write songs together uh, a lot of, through a lot of feedback and kind of mentoring 
by this guy, Steve Lindsay, who had this kind of songwriting, secrets of songwriting, guidelines of song, hit, hit songwriting. Let's just say hit songwriting more specifically, not just songwriting. You can write any kind of song you want, but it's the hit. If you want to write a hit, it's got to have this. It's got to have that. It's got to have the other. So Bruno, Bruno and I were very much on the same page and relying on one another to scrutinize and, and very much respect one another. Like, you know, for instance, I, I, I think I was pushing like, this chorus is not, these choruses are not good enough. This chorus is not landing. This is not good. And then Bruno was the one who was like, we need like a hooky bass line. We need the dope. Dope, 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 dope. You know, and then there's just kind of one after another after another of kind of like drilling down on what is going to make this song perfect, but very collaborative. And then Mark being like, you know, doing his magic of like, it needs this sound here, like kind of, you know, he's actually, I, I, always, I always try to push him to give himself his props as a songwriter, but he kind of fancies himself more as a old school producer, but that's also kind of part of it. You know, like Max will kind of, Max Martin will kind of sometimes mention like, you know, the production is the songwriting and it's kind of like our conversation about what publishing is. It's like, well, we're making a record now. We're kind of writing it. We're kind of, that, it is kind of writing, right? Except, except instead of notes on a page or words on a page, it's, it's sound on a hard disk, but it's still the composition, right? So to get back to the question, it, it, in that process, it was really everyone kind of holding everything in balance and pushing things to, the, to uh, be the best it could be and being uncompromising. And I I, I mean, I, I think all of us are compromising. I think, I think at that time we also had a role like, kind of like you relayed like your email. I was definitely, of, of me, <laughs> like I think in that era, I was definitely, my role was to be very uncompromising and just st straight shooting. And I think Bruno and Mark really appreciated that part of me and looked to me to that be my role to tear it down. I want you to tear it down, like because once Jeff that. once Jeff can't yeah. tear this down, we know we got a winner, you know. So it's kind of everyone kind of had a different role and kind of having that imbalance, you know. And I I think to some extent each one of us would tear down the other and challenge one another in order to build this thing. So it was you know it was a hundred percent and and Phil in there also, you know. Like I, I think Phil's role is maybe to kind of feed more than and then me and Bruno and Mark kind of tearing each other down and, and getting to a place where we can all agree we love this. And, and then at the end, speaking of that tearing down process, you know, then we had 80 versions of the song and then had to ultimately go back in the studio and just redo the entire thing from the perspective of a, okay, if we were a band and we had to go on stage right now, what would, what would the form be? What would this be? And then we reapproached it like that and literally tore it down again and rebuilt it with all the elements that we had kind of, all the roads we had gone down, every, and kind of then cherry-picked all the best things. And that's kind of how that song wound up coming together. And now you listen to it, it's like, it's just a nonstop flow of hooks. There's no fat. It just keeps you on the ride. It, does, it fulfills all the checklist of a hit song. So despite its fun, I think everyone's powers you know, Bruno's ability to kind of just make things really fun and celebratory and, and light and cool 
you know, and Mar Mar Mark's ability to kind of make things cool and have this kind of slightly elevated feeling contrasting with Bruno's more like every man uh, experience and then my like, uh, my experience with funk music, my uncompromising attitude and, and everyone's kind of forces coming together Obviously, it was quite a surprise to me. I think all of us, me, I was just like, I couldn't believe this song took off like it did. Like, uptown funk, okay. I mean, you know, some do and some don't, but yeah, that one did. But I, I think the superpower of that group is patience. Mm. That, that the, the ability to say, we can beat this, we can beat this, we can beat this. And, um, Anybody who's listening to this who's aspiring, so many of those people try to write a song a day and then leave it. But if all you did was write a cool pre-chorus, yeah. when you see the value of Uptown Funk, you realize that pre-chorus has a lot of value. Go back to it. Write a better verse. Right? Like If you have a sick verse, that verse might is worth going back for nine months if it's that good. Totally. And, you know? I think that's so such that's a great point you say about like writing a song a day or like you, when you used to be like a producer, you'd be like, I want to do, I did, I did eight beats today. And it's like, kind of goes yeah. back to that, like going deeper thing. It's like, can you make, instead of building like four houses, can you like build one house and how many stories can you put on that house? How many basement levels can you go down? How many, what kind of dimension and depth can you bring yeah. to this song so that when it hits the listener, it feels valuable? It's like watching a movie or reading a story where it's like the characters, they feel like they have a backstory. There's like depth under the surface that is never explicitly explored, but you feel it, you know? And, and music and, and sound and songs, not sound, songs and music are about feeling, people ultimately feeling something. And, there are a lot of devices you can employ to to get it to resonate in a more powerful, impactful way than just doing multi, multi, multi songs. If every one is just kind of thin and not very deep. Yeah, I, and this is where it helps to work with artists too. And and uh, you know, I know we don't have a ton of time left, so you know, the next artist that I want to talk about is Harry Styles, partly because. That that's another album that has a lot of depth. But maybe the coolest part of it in your journey is there were even when you're the producer on a lot of this other stuff, fun is also a super group. You know, you're in you're constantly around these like super groups. What makes the Harry Styles thing interesting, and Harry's a very good writer. I've written with him a few times, very talented. But that's a lot of your proteges. It's your team of people that you that you become like the. That's when you're really go to guru status, where it's you did the old school producing. You're the one who put that team totally, together. Totally, totally. Just just tell me about the pride attached to that versus all the other songs. I may be projecting, but I imagine that you're super proud of that. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if it's like necessarily over other songs, but like you, you definitely hit on something that's that's true. It's like it was a different mode for me, especially because I had I had just had my son, so um, it was I had kind of when Harry approached me to work with him, I kind of had to have this caveat, like you know, usually like with Nate or Kanye or 
Mark or Bruno, you know, in the past, like the, 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 the deal is you're in it 24 seven, you're in the trenches, you're going to be there by their side, you're going to be creating together. And I was just like, I am not going to be able to just like sit in there in a studio with you every day. And, um, but I can put this team together and then I can come supervise. And then it was this whole different mode and this new interesting way of working that had worked really well for a couple of reasons, I think, because like, as you pointed out, like Harry's gifts, it also allowed him to kind of express himself, which I think was, was a really important part of that project for it to go from One Direction where it's very manufactured. Here's the song, sing it, get it done. You're the vocalist. It's like very old school kind of like, I don't, I may, I, I, maybe they had some, I don't know a lot about, but it seemed much more manufactured than the idea of like, uh, the new Harry project where it was like, this is my project and it's about me and it's about different things. It, sound, it sounds and feels very different than One Direction. So me not being in the room kind of allowed him to kind of be the, at the center of it a little bit, I think, especially as like I'm the dynamic change from me being a planet in Kanye's solar system to I had kind of developed, I was a little more established as a producer and a, an artist myself. So... That helped, and then also it helped me to just, you know, it probably happens all the time with, I think, whether you're writing something or you're mixing something, when you come back the next day and you listen to it, you can tell in one second what's good and what's not, or at least it, what hits you and might hit you different, you know, having the perspective. So having the perspective coming in to like, okay, what did you guys work on? Okay, this is good, this is good, get rid of this. And a lot of times it would be like... uh you need a better chorus. Now your chorus is now your pre-chorus and now we need to write a chorus that actually tops all this. Because what happens is like, you write this great verse, you write this great pre-chorus and you're kind of out of gas, you need to make a chorus, so you just kind of make something, but it actually needs to be the opposite. It needs to ramp up until you hit the chorus and you're just like, boom, this is the anthem. So a lot of times uh, it would be about that, like edit, what they've done and then try to come up with even like, or even you can have a kind of a different problem where you're writing too many words and you don't, you don't realize that like uh, uh, hallway, which is one of my favorite songs on the Harry first Harry album. Uh, you know, they had written, which is beautiful when Mitch and Harry kind of came up with that, just that beautiful guitar figure and, and, and the vibe of that, what is it? Just let me know where to go. I got to get better. I got to get better. I got to get better. I mean, you forget sometimes that most of the best hit songs ever written, it's just one line repeated over and over and over again. You don't, you don't, you forget. You can just repetition and redundancy is your friend you know you pound it pound it in there so kind of being able to point that out from 30,000 feet was a great different kind of exercise um, for that album and I am very proud of that album the other thing I'll say about the Harry Project is all my favorite songs that I've done with Harry and like uh, um, Treat People With Kindness on the second album and then um, the first album was, of course, um, what's it called? Uh, Sign of the Times. Those were very raw, like, hairy moments. Like, 
Sign of the Times, he just started playing that piano and singing like a figure. And I was like, that's it. That's you, you know? That comes from you. Instead of it becoming this very collaborative thing, it's awesome when you can, that's one of those things, caption that lightning in a bottle or treat people with kindness was this very kind of funny thing. Like you listen to that melody, it was almost like a joke, you know, like a few things were like a joke. Kiwi was kind of a joke. They were like, this is a joke song we're doing. I said, no, that's a, that's a fucking smash. Like that's, and that one goes off at the show. You know, it's like the simplicity and the spontaneity. Another thing Bruno yeah. and Phil were just like amazing at is having this spontaneity. Um, but on the Harry Project, like I, I loved when, and I think he really cultivated that on a lot of his stuff that made it very hairy was, when things were just like spontaneous and came right from him and it could be this thing. And it's exactly that thing you were saying earlier when it's like, you're like, ah, that's not something. And someone in the room is like, no, that's the shit. Like, isn't it amazing how we need that other perspective or that other person or that to say, no, that idea is, we're convinced that idea is shit. And someone else is like, no, that's like the best idea. How crazy is that? that we can't see that all the time. Yeah, I I think that's our job as we get further as we still go in the room, still write those songs, but you can kind of trust that, you know, like you become the Steve Lindsay in that. You become the Yoda, you know? <laughs> it's like But here, I'm going to go and do the last segments just 5 for 5. I'm going to list five things just tell me that what comes off the top of your head. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And... Mm. Kanye West. Genius. Harry Styles. Sexy. Nate Roos. I already used up genius, so I'll just say uh, emotion. I like that one. Um, Bruno Mars. Fun. Your son. Light. Well, thank you for doing this. Uh, you know, I know, like I said from the beginning, I know we've we've crossed paths a couple times, but haven't really had a chance to just sit and talk. And and uh, I appreciate you. You've had more of an impact on my career than uh, I've had on yours. But um, I I wanted you to know that, like, I really appreciate it. Even along the way, to see, like, okay, I I see that I could I need to step it up to. Six years later, being like, oh, I wonder what's going on in that room. And while I'm in another room, being like, it's cool that I'm part of a, of a, I got up to a level of songwriter where I could work with such incredible talent and feel like I'm contributing because I learned my lessons along the way. And then to be, you know, to be able to celebrate back to back, you know, some of the achievements where, you know, it made me feel like I was following this journey. Along, you know, along with you in a way that that is unique to 
our 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 new relationship. So I appreciate you, my friend. That's awesome, Ross. Thank you so much for having me, man. And I, uh, like so many good conversations, and I, and and congratulations to you on all all your success. And that's you know it's a testament to you that you. I think we all we all ultimately should be in competition with ourselves. You know, it's like a very delicate balancing act to just be in, but be inspired by and use the competition and be inspired to say, I'm going to take that from this person. I'm going to take that from this person, um, but I'm going to still be me. So, man, thank you so much for having me. I, I enjoyed it so much, and um, it's so great to reconnect with you yeah. and not be a dick this time. <laughs> shout, out, <laughs> shout out to uh, Dave Hoffman um, for, for introducing ooh, us ooh, in the first ooh, place. Ooh, and- <laughs> ooh. Ulu, love it. All right, homie. Well, uh, I'll I'll see you at the studio. All right, Ross. Sounds good, man. All right, homie. All right, bye. Bye. This episode is produced by Joe London, Hypnosis, Mega House Management, and myself. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan, signing off.